This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. This volume is dedicated to Dr. Ellsworth McIntyre and the staff members of Grace Community Schools, Naples, Florida, in great appreciation for their generous support of the work of my father, Reverend Mark R. Rushduni, President, Calcedon Foundation. Forward. Abandon all preconceived notions that the word confession might bring to mind. Abandon them all, no matter how ingrained, and come to this book with an open mind. Confession is something that must be recovered in its biblical fullness, with its importance properly assessed and its culture-wide abuse identified, indicted and rejected. This volume by R.J. Rushduni is arguably the most consistently biblical study yet published of an oft-neglected and even more frequently misrepresented dimension of the Christian faith. In this work, the thick cobwebs of entrenched traditions, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, are sundered to reveal the glistening truths hidden behind them. For whatever our initial prejudices may be, we all have adopted various doctrines of confession at the individual, church, state and cultural levels. We simply don't recognise these currents of thoughts under the name confession, but that obscuring of the truth doesn't alter its impact. We are culturally and ecclesiastically awash in various forms of false confession and have abandoned any pretense to maintaining a biblical orientation on the matter. While Protestantism has distanced itself from Roman Catholic notions of confession, both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism have distanced themselves from biblical teaching concerning confession. For Protestantism, however, the term confession is so intimately bound up with its views of the Catholic confessional that the term has become a virtual shibboleth. As the phrase goes, Protestants see nothing but bathwater when they look at anything related to the idea of confession. There is no biblical baby in the Roman Catholic bathwater, so all must be thrown out. Rush Dooney himself comments on the hazards of even touching on this topic. Quote, Another related example of the dereliction of many churches can be cited. Because portions of this work on confession appeared in the Chalcedon Report in 1991, I learned second-hand of a pastor's opinion that Rush Journey is on the road to Rome. If to believe that sin must be confessed is Romanism, then these people are not reading their Bibles. From page 201, end quote. Because both Protestant and Roman Catholic branches of Christendom claim to possess the God-sanctioned perspective on confession, this book will offend readers in both camps who have canonised those perspectives so far as to insulate them against biblical teaching. This is the danger of turning a biblical issue into an ecclesiastical one. 
it can then only be read in ecclesiastical terms, which is to prejudge the biblical issue in advance. A wholesale reconstruction of the matter of confession is ruled out a priori. As we've been warned, our traditions make void the law of God. It takes a very bold writer to take on the sacred cows on both sides of the aisle. Rush Dooney didn't go forward with this book out of any interest to stir the pot, but rather to recover the foundations of the biblical doctrine that got lost in the tumult of church fisticuffs. This isn't merely an academic or abstract matter, as the author fully documents. The repercussions of this loss of the biblical perspective have cut a wide swath of destruction and misery across all the societies affected by it. Why? Because, first, we've lost the benefits of the biblical perspective and thus suffered the consequent harm that this loss has invariably entails at the individual, church and cultural level. Second, we've distributed a multitude of false forms of confession across our individual and corporate mental landscapes, which have wrought incalculable harm to humanity. Denying the biblical doctrine of confession doesn't remove confession from the picture. Confession merely takes on a different guise, one geared to gratify man's sin nature and accommodate his lust for self-justification. As if the topic of this volume weren't controversial enough, given reigning ecclesiastical biases, its title also tends to make orthodox Christians uneasy. The Cure of Souls sounds disturbingly similar to New Age volumes with titles like Soul Healing, one book bearing this title involving the unearthing of alleged past lives by hypnosis, another one being focused on spiritualism in psychotherapy, or the multitude of books with Healing the Soul in the title. The term, however, is an old one that has regrettably been too often hijacked by modern writers. Rushdini, however, is interested in recovering its full meaning and importance. He consequently repudiates that cultural hijacking by reaffirming the core concept without apology. Quote, At one time, pastoral counselling and the confessional were alike aspects of what was called the cure of souls. This term is an excellent one and best describes what is the purpose of both. The most effective cure of souls, however, is the preaching of the word of God. It is not only faith that comes by hearing, but also repentance, a change of heart and life, humility, a submission to correction and more. If men will not hear the word of God, why should they hear the pastor? If men will not be corrected by God's word, will man's word correct them? From page 98, end quote. Merely giving this book such a title won't go far towards redeeming the idea behind that title. The book itself must make its case on the biblical merits. This is precisely where this volume shines most brightly. This is doubly important insofar as the biblical doctrine of confession is not only struggling to be heard above the noise of Protestant-Catholic mutual recriminations, but is in head-to-head -head competition with the aggressive secularist agendas in regard to the matter of the cure of souls. Quote, now, godly counsel can be very beneficial, and to relate the word of God to human problems is thoroughly necessary. The therapy heresy, however, is the adoption of humanistic premises as a means for the cure of souls. By Freud's deliberate design, psychological counselling, psychotherapy, 
was to replace the work of priests and pastors as the best means of eliminating religion. End quote from page 107. Between the internecine conflicts within Christendom, internal compromise within the churches, and usurpation and assimilation of the concept of confession within humanistic frameworks, the entire notion of confession is sown with confusion, a confusion long since exploited for monetary gain. Quote, the whole area of confession is now a murky abyss. Because the churches have more or less abandoned confession does not make it any the less a moral and psychological necessity. Psychoanalysts and others have built empires on this need. End quote. From page 223. Rush Puny sets forth a biblical recovery of the doctrine of confession with a covenantal Calvinistic context. This is an important fact, one easily overlooked a fact having significant ramifications in regard to counselling. Quote, The failure to ground confession in sound theology, in covenantalism, warps the whole of the Christian faith and life into something man-centred, pietistic and ineffectual. End quote. From page 247. Rushduni does not see Arminianism as being sound theology, but rather as a man-centred system that renders the cure of souls ineffectual. He discusses this in connection with the so-called counselling heresy, which applies to many forms of so-called Christian counselling practiced today, although Rushduni's criticism below would not apply to the seminal contributions to the field of counselling pioneered by Dr. J. Adams. The ineffectiveness of Arminian-based counselling is evident in the perpetual treadmill it creates due to its foundational presuppositions. Quote, Basic to the heresy of counselling is this belief that a man can be changed by human agencies. In many churches, for example, counsellors create a dependency syndrome, even as secular counsellors do. If you alone, or as a couple, are counselled, then regular checkups with a doctor must follow. These may be weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annually, but the person remains dependent on the counsellor for balance and perspective. A codependency with the counsellor is created to prop up the person counselled and to feed the counsellor's belief in his necessary function. It is not surprising that this counselling heresy has arisen in connection with Arminianism. Arminianism reserves to man the power of determination. His free will is the central fact of the moral universe. The world of Arminianism has two means of helping people save themselves. First, there is the old-fashioned Arminian revival. Second, there is counselling, which is, in essence, revivalism reduced to a one-on-one -on -one basis. Instead of a mass meeting, the needy person exercises his free will within a counsellor's office. The initiative is his. He goes to the office and he accepts or rejects the diagnosis. This is not salvation. It is humanistic self-reformation. The counselling heresy rests on Arminianism. It asserts that, while God can assist change, the initiative belongs to man. End quote. From pages 112 to 113. What then do we lose by ignoring the contents of this volume? Why would restoring a biblical doctrine of confession be so important? Hasn't Protestantism done just fine without lurching back in Rome's general direction, as the critique tends to be poisonously phrased? 
The first problem is that unconfessed sin has major theological consequences. Consequences that are rarely recognised, but which plague the churches that turn their back on the biblical doctrine of confession. Rushduni, commenting on the cover-up of church scandals, couches this serious issue in no uncertain terms. Quote, When we uncover our sins in confession, God covers them by Christ's atonement. Covering means atoning. To cover our sins means to deny Christ's atonement and to assume that our covering is the best solution to the problem of sin. Not only are such reprobate coverings common, but they are also routinely practiced by churchmen, clergy and laity alike. Pastors and people who cover their sins are thereby in effect saying that they can atone for sin, and this is blasphemy. They place their humanistic concerns for propriety over the requirement of confession, confessing our sins to receive God's grace and mercy. More important for them than the state of grace is the state of compliance with social services. It is not surprising that such sinners routinely return to their sin. When men cover their sins rather than confessing to God, we have false priorities. More important than a right relationship with God, then, is a good surface in the meeting of the world of our time. We have, as a result, a world of facades, of sinners masquerading as the best of people. Hypocrisy replaces virtue. End quote. From pages 100 to 101. While people become averse to confessing their own sins within a biblically sanctioned context, they have been trained well to confess the sins of others. This distortion of the doctrine of confession is particularly, particularly insipid and has thoroughly infected our culture. The confession of other people's sins is a form of false confession, one that has replaced the biblical form across the board. Quote, Students were encouraged to discuss their family problems, by which was meant whatever they thought was wrong with their parents. This was good training in Phariseeism, and it was an incentive to self-righteousness. With all too many psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors and pastors, good counselling too often includes confessing other people's sins, especially our parents. All this has fostered an evil generation. Such false confession marks individuals and also nationalities and races. We have developed professional finger pointers who make a life's work of confessing the sins of other people's. There are enough offenders out there to make it easy to do so. But as Christians, we must believe that grace and growth in sanctification come from confessing our own sins. The Lord God nowhere pronounces forgiveness or a blessing on anyone confessing someone else's sins. On the ecclesiastical scene, such confessions are a well-practiced art. In this century, all the churches are so deeply involved in a variety of heresies, immoralities, offences and sins that they all need to be deeply in prayer and self-confession, not in mutual recriminations. Careful theological analyses and critiques are one thing when accompanied by a careful statement of God's scripted truth, but cheap virtue gained by confessing someone else's sins is another matter, a sinful one. End quote from pages 130 to 131. Rush also touches on the topic of inquisition, wherein confession and coercion meet. 
This fusing of the two is biblically illicit, and Protestants, by and large, have no serious difficulties recognising the error of this fusion when they behold the speck in the eye of the Roman Catholics across the aisle. Rushduni makes clear the theological and moral enormity at the core of this fusion. Quote, what we have seen thus far is that confession is a moral necessity. Confession can be made to the church or the clergy. It can be made to the person offended. Depending on the context, one or another of these can be morally required, but they cannot be coerced. It is a great evil to assume that because a particular goal is good, any means to it partakes of that good. In fact, evil means create evil ends. Churches have suffered for their failures here. Psychotherapy is more and more discredited and the power state is committing suicide. The link between confession and inquisition must be broken, morally, legally and in practice. The world is moving into terrorism because its premises are very agreeable to it, civilly and ecclesiastically. Terrorism justifies itself by pointing to the ostensible evils of its targets. End quote from page 262. But Rushduni does not leave the matter here. He exhibits a mode of abuse in which the same fundamental error can crop up just as easily in Protestant circles where ecclesiocentrism can become the beam in the Protestant's eye. Sporting such optical lumber readily prevents one from seeing the problem that Rushduni here has diagnosed. Quote, Consider the implications of mandatory confession. It requires, implicitly, a confession not only of sin, but also of faith, faith as the Church defines it. This gives enormous powers to the Church. It compels the faithful to make a double confession. If the Church can compel confession, it can logically also compel an undeviating, unswerving obedience to the Church's confession of faith. This then vindicates an inquisition, end quote from page 261. Additional fallout stemming from the many false views of confession in circulation over the last centuries is evident. Among the most egregious directions such erroneous views have led to involve man implicitly blaming God for his own moral failings as if God were the author of man's moral woes. Quote, it is common for young males and older ones as well to believe that sex in men is an ungovernable drive and urge. Such a belief is an indictment of God. It is an insistence that chastity is a physical impossibility. I recall hearing an arrogant pastor treat male sexual offences lightly, insisting it was all due to those male gonads. Today, however, schools, counsellors and pastors are too often ready to share this view. They trivialise sin and they trivialise the Bible. What room is there for confession if a person's sin is due to his or her biology? Again, what if the excuse rendered is heredity or biology, environment or some like factor? What then remains to be confessed? What need is there to confess anything other than God's offence because he made me so, how can I help it? Confession is replaced by the indictment of God. Sin and confession are both trivialised and grace as well. Everything is reduced to a matter of words, a simple formula, no restitution, no penalty for sin, and no thought of sin's offence to God as well as to men. End quote. From page 200. It is for good reason that the author twice, 
in pages 135 and 139, draws attention to a book entitled A World I Never Made. Although not disclosed in Rushdoony's text, this 1936 volume was written by James T. Farrell, an American novelist who had migrated from Trotskyism to the Socialist Party of America and was heading back towards the Socialist Workers' Party before his death in 1979. The core of socialist thinking, such as Farrell's, is identified by Rushdoony as the environmentalist heresy, the view that man is shaped by the environmental influences around him and is therefore a perpetual victim. Soviet apologist Lincoln Steffens famously placed the blame for the moral catastrophe in the Garden of Eden on an environmental factor and not upon Adam, nor Eve, nor the serpent. The blame was reposed elsewhere in Steffens' view. It was, it is, the apple. To assert this is to indict the God who created that apple. Man is therefore depicted as justified in his rage against the God of Scripture and his unrealistic expectations after having stacked the deck against man so unfairly. All such thinking involves the determination to be holier than God, a position first held by Satan, from Genesis 3, 1-6, as Rush Dooney has pointedly observed in page 231. Of course, Stephens and Farrell are also confessing the sins of others in their works, including the sins of God himself. This approach to confession leads to self-generated virtue, spontaneously bestowed when the confessor learns to push the right political buttons to make his benevolence altogether clear, notwithstanding his personal moral failings in other areas. Quote, Confess your dedication to civic virtue, to world peace, to helping the poor with tax funds, to minority rights, to racial brotherhood, and to other like matters, and you have, in the eyes of many, confessed your virtue. Do it loudly enough in Congress, and you confess near perfection. End quote. From page 138. In regard to this emphasis, we see a similar substitution of irresponsible tendencies in the place of biblical confession and humble acceptance of our status as responsible creatures under God. What, uh, quote, One of the characteristics of peoples in the second half of the 20th century is their desire and lust for instant gratification. This implies a related outlook, an insistence on no frustration. End quote, from page 199. Such an outlook makes for a soil that is utterly hostile to the planting and growth of biblical notions of sin, grace, responsibility and confession. Such perspective only serve to further alienate modern man from God's provision for his personal and corporate guilt. As in his earlier volume on Sigmund Freud, Rushdoony here expands on the fundamental error that modernism makes in regard to guilt. It has misdiagnosed its cause and has done so deliberately so that man need not confront God, whose law man has trampled underfoot. This is most evident in the context of modern psychotherapy. Quote, the psychotherapeutic confessional thus leads, led to an understanding in terms of this new philosophy. The process bypassed entirely the fact of sin could, to concentrate on the feeling of guilt. End quote. From page 21. 
While it is apparent that a misdiagnosis by secular therapists may well resonate with serious Christian reader of this volume, Christians also distort key aspects of the biblical doctrine of confession in ways tailored to illegitimately indemnify man against the consequences of his sinful acts. Such distortions also constitute false forms of confession, and the consequences of various examples of these distortions are, el- are self evident in Rushduni's treatment of the matter. One distortion involves the Hindu notion of karma, wherein man is hopelessly enmeshed in paying the consequences of his sins endlessly. Opposing this excessively rigorous approach is an extreme casualness in regard to sin, which, unlike karma, merely trivialises the transgression of God's laws. Quote, At the other extreme is the kind of sinner described in Proverbs 30.20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Sin is not seen as having consequences any greater than a little food on the corner of one's mouth. It is easily wiped off with no repercussions. So too, sin is regarded as a trifle, not to be taken seriously. Today, in many churches, sin is taken very casually. Love should prevail, and love should lead to a forgiveness of sins. This is humanism. Too too many who profess to believe the whole world of God dismiss sin by saying, it's all under the blood, as though this means that sin need no longer be taken seriously. End quote. From page 209. But sin does need to be taken seriously. It was serious enough to require the Lord Christ to die on the cross. But it should not be dealt with after the harshness of the karmic view. The choice is not between two distortions of the biblical view, but rather the recovery of the biblical view. To recover the truth concerning confession, we must come to understand what is properly involved in the matter. We must be able to distinguish false confession from true confession and to understand the proper sphere and limits of confession to gain its intended benefits and avoid the hazards of distorted approaches to it. The first principle that Rushduni lays down in setting forth a biblical approach to confession appears near the beginning of this book. Quote, Confession without repentance is no confession at all. End quote. From page 20. With this one statement, Rushduni atomizes all misconceptions concerning ritualism, easy believism, cheap grace, antinomianism, pietism, environmentalist heresies and more. This crucial idea is expanded in more detail by him. Quote, Confession is not merely a verbal act, it is required because of an offence in the background, and the verbal act of confession, under whatever form of practice, public or private, must conclude in an act to alter, as far as possible, the damage done. The harmful act must be followed by a remedial act as far as is possible. Without at least the heartfelt promises of a willingness to remedy one's act, there is no forgiveness. The modern mood seeks to substitute the verbal confession for the consequent act. End quote. From page 18. With confession, there can be no name it and claim it, or blab it and grab it. There must be meaningful, concrete restitution to the maximum possible extent. Confession is not some alien idea unrelated to Christ's mission concerning the restitution of all things, 
Acts 3.21. It is part and parcel with it. Restitution and confession are correlates. They go hand in hand. Rushduni therefore rightly focuses his attention on the restitution proclaimed by Zacchaeus and our Lord's reaction to it. The author makes clear that modernism positions its focus on the wrong thing in regard to confession and therefore misses the blessings inherent in observing the biblical principles undergirding the concept. Quote, The modern perspective puts the focus of attention on the act of confession, that is, of revealing one's secret sins. In the life of the church, in the various communions, the focus has been on confession as the first step towards healing, restoration, penance and restitution. End quote from page 16. Let us take stock then of the offence of Rushduni's position. He has linked two unwelcome doctrines together, confession and restitution. Modern man wants to indulge in various self-justifying pharisaically driven false confessions and to forestall and avoid restitution. Rushduni points out that confession is intended not to end at the verbal act, but to be consummated in a, rede- in a remedial act, in actual restitution, not to be confused with penance. If there is a natural enmity against confession, it is this, nobody will undertake a restitution unless a confession has come first. The eradication of confession as a biblical category has undercut restitution in both the ecclesiastical and secular world. False confessions lead to false or empty restitutions to a society society at war with itself. The nature of that war is powerfully summarised in this book. But Rushduni doesn't just diagnose the problem and leave the reader in intellectual suspense about what the biblical solutions to it might be. He clearly depicts what God expects of those he has created in his image and what blessings will overtake those who refuse the self-atoning errors incipient in the various false forms of confession current in our age. We have here then both a positive exposition as well as a cautionary tale, stretching throughout human history regarding the loss and ultimate recovery of an important element of the faith once delivered to the saints. This volume properly starts at page 11. The preface, pages 1 to 9, that precedes the first chapter is a transcription of an early sermon delivered by R.J. Rushduni on the topic of confession, the salient text being Romans 10, 1 to 11. The historical context for the doctrine of confession is laid out with clarity in this exposition, which focuses on confession of Christ as opposed to confession of personal sin. This critical emphasis resounds throughout the entire book. It was therefore fitting to begin this volume with this material, which providentially came to light during the preparation of the manuscript for printing. The historical development of confession in the early church narrated by the author makes clear that the church's efforts to repair the defects in its practice of confession only worsened the problems inherent in its chosen confessional practices. The missteps arose at the very outset of church history. Sadly, the lessons have yet to be fully learned by many tradition-bound Protestants and Roman Catholics. Protestants and evangelicals reading this book with open minds will be able to finally see the baby heretofore hidden in the bathwater. 
Roman Catholic readers will be able to discern the inaccuracy of the claim that the baby could never drown under that bathwater. For all, it would be our prayer that those who confess Christ would embrace the fullness of that foundational confession. Forward by Martin G. Selbreed The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.